0: Well, I want to say welcome to all of you joining us at Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you with us this morning. And for all of you Stranger Things fans, fans, we're kind of using that as our, uh, you know, lead-in video, because if you think Stranger Things happen in that television show, you haven't seen anything till you see the strange things that happen in the book of Judges. So we're looking at the book of Judges, and we've kind of teed that up by saying a few times... In this book, we're going to find lots of dysfunctional people doing despicable things. And we're going to learn some of that this morning as we look at the first two judges in our Stranger Things kind of series. Well, the first one that we're going to look at gives us the paradigm. So right at the beginning in chapter 3, we're going to meet the first judge. His name is Othniel, and Othniel gives us the paradigm. Now for those of you that may not have been here last week, or maybe you were here and you forgot, I I know that happens, here's the paradigm that we're going to talk about for the next number of weeks. The cycle that repeats over and over and over again. The cycle begins with rebellion. The The people of God, the Israelites, turn their backs on God, leave what he's calling them to do, and go chasing other things. They're making up their own mind. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's kind of that rebellion. Well, consequences come from decisions, and oppression follows that rebellion. In the book of Judges, that oppression usually comes by an enemy nation, another country, a group of people, coming overpowering the Israelites, putting them in bondage, subjugating them to have all of their stuff taken, making them slaves. That's the oppression part. Well, eventually, the Israelites have enough of that, and they cry out to God. Sometimes it's repentance. Often it's kind of just crying out to God because the pain is really bad. But amazingly, graciously, mercifully, God hears and answers that cry. And he sends a rescuer. The rescuers are called judges in the book. So you need to get the idea of a black you know, robe and a high desk and a gavel. Get that out of your mind. Judges are rescuers. They're deliverers. And just like when Moses went to Egypt and delivered, he was God's tool to deliver the Israelites, that, that's what judges do. The judges in this book are kind of like Moses. They go and deliver, they rescue the people from the oppression that they're experiencing because of their rebellion. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Judges 3, and let's read the few verses that we have in the Othniel cycle. So we're gonna leave that, you know, the paradigm up there. And as I read, See if you can find all four of those things in the story. So here we go. Verse 7 of Judges chapter 3. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so, to, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Aran Naharaim to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushim Rishithaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him, So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenes, died. And that's all we know of this guy. But notice the paradigm. It's almost as if the author of the book wants us to see in kind of short fashion the cycle that the rest of the book follows. So let me ask a couple questions. How many of you have ever played chess? Raise your hands. All right, put them down. How many ever played backgammon? All right, dominoes? You do know dominoes and Batgammon are the two most famous prison games. Don't ask me how I know, but they love playing them in prison. How many of you play Madden football? Anybody? Other video games, right? Okay, now, if you're going to teach someone how to play one of those games, suppose someone has never played Madden NFL. Somebody's never played. So you're going to teach them how to play. Here's how you probably do it. You give them a few of the basic rules, and then you play a game, right? You say, well... Well, you'll see how it works as we play. You play a sample game. You kind of jump through the hoops. If you're teaching someone how to play chess, you give them the basics of how the pieces move, and then you say, well, let's play a practice game. Well, it's almost as if the author of Judges says, now we're gonna repeat this cycle, rebellion, oppression, repentance, rescue. We're gonna repeat it over and over and over again. So right out of the chute, let me show you how it works. We're gonna play kind of a practice run. Now, this really happened, but the author does it in real short fashion to show us the paradigm, to give us the cycle. Did you notice how the cycle began? So here it is, the verse that starts the cycle. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. That's the beginning of the cycle. That's the rebellion piece, right? That's rebellion. And as we said last week, consequences follow thoughts and actions. So here's the picture. And this is a picture that kind of runs throughout the scripture but you see it in Judges and you see it in this particular verse pretty clearly. Suppose a fly is kind of flying around and the fly is tired. He's been flying for a long time and he needs to find a place to rest. And he looks down and he sees over in the corner a spider's web. And the spider beckons the fly to come. Come on over here, Mr. Fly, take a load off. Come on, just put your little feet on my web. And the fly flies over because he's really tired and says, really, really? I've never really landed on a spider's web before. It's no problem. Just land right here. And so the fly says, okay, fine, give me a rest. Nice spider, right? Puts his little feet down and it's a little sticky on the web, right? Oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry. You'll, You'll get used to it. And eventually, you know, the fly gets a wing stuck and another wing stuck. And eventually the fly says, uh-oh, I've got a problem here. I'm stuck. And the more the fly tries to get away from the web, the stucker he gets, right? The more he tries to free himself, the more tangled he's getting in the web. That's the picture in Judges. And so right out of the chute, the Israelites on the inside forget God But notice what happens on the inside always has a result on the outside. They forget God on the inside. They then serve the Baals on the outside. The word Baal and Asherah, they're just two generic names for God and goddess. And so it doesn't matter what the Baals are like. There are lots of different Baals in the land. And there are lots of different Asherah in the land. The Asherah are the female goddesses. The Baals are the male gods. And so living in the promised land, because they failed to get rid of all the idols, right? Remember chapter 1 and 2. They failed to get rid of all the idols. Now they're living in the land. God's people, Israel, are living in the land. They forget God. Well, they look around and see all the competition. They look around and say, look at these really cool gods over here. Boy, those bales are strong and healthy. And the people serving those bales have great crops, and look over here, look at the Asherah. Boy, the people serving the Asherah, they're living with lots of pleasure in their life, lots of opportunity to exercise their lusts. They forget God on the inside. They look at the competition on the outside. And before you know it, they're running after the competition. And just like the fly, first their feet are stuck, then their wings are stuck. And before you know it, they're dinner for the spider. That's how the process works. Always begins. Now you may look at that and say, Boy, that all happens because you forget? Now, I know I'm asking a lot of you. Remember that we talked a few months ago about forgetting and remembering? Remember that? And we said that the opposite of forgetting is remembering, but we often have a weak definition of remember we often treat remember as recall. So we think forget. Oh, you failed to recall. Do you really think all of the Israelites forgot that God delivered their ancestors out of Egypt? Do you think they forgot that? Do you think they forgot Moses' name and no longer knew who he was? Do you think they forgot to celebrate the Passover? No, they're doing all those things. It's not that they can't recall the facts. It's that they are disconnected from those facts making a difference in their lives. Those facts are no longer controlling their decision making. They are putting God and what God has done on the back burner. And when you live with lots of God competition, you know, competitors in the land, you then take another God, something else you're living for, that gets put on the front burner. You can rest- still call all, recall all the facts and data about God, but you're controlled by other thoughts. You're controlled by other allegiances, by other loves, by other values. That's what's going on. You don't talk about Baals and Asherah. I'm guessing, but you do know that process, don't you? I mean, you come to Calvary Church. Most of you come all the time. Do you forget the data that you've learned in Sunday school and church about who God is and what he's done, who Jesus is? No, it isn't that we can't recall the data. It's that the truths that we know are no longer guiding our decisions. Those truths get put on the back burner. Something else gets put on the front burner. Oh yeah, and what do we choose? some of the competitors from our culture then get put onto the front burner and the controlling decision force in our lives becomes the God competitors in our culture rather than the God that we know about from the scripture. The process is exactly the same. It's just the competitors are different. See how that works? So that's the rebellion. What happens after that? Well, here's the next verse. The anger of the Lord burned against them, so he sold them into the hands of the king of Abraham. That's oppression. Now, here's what you have to remember. God does not primarily send in Cushion to beat on the Israelites to punish them. He sells them into the hands of Cushion to get their attention, to open their eyes so they will come back to him. But remember, decisions have consequences. And so they made a decision, kind of God goes on the back burner, some of the competing gods go on the front burner. Those decisions have consequences. Oppression comes because God wants to say, wake the heck up. You put the real God on the back burner, you're living you know, according to a false God on the front burner, and you've got a bunch of junk happening in your lives. You need to trade up, trade back to God. God graciously brings cushion in to get their attention and bring them back to him so life will go as God intended it to go. Now, I know when we're experiencing that pressure, stress, tension, pain that God brings, we often don't think of it that way, right? We think, oh, my good God! Oh my goodness, God must not love me. God must not care. All these difficulties coming into my life. No, God lovingly allows that stuff into our lives to bring us back to the source of life and the center of good decision-making. So oppression comes, and it's real oppression. I mean, they're experiencing pain. So what do they do? They have enough of that, and you know they're not, they're not complete idiots. What do they do? Next, next verse. They cry out to God. Lord, we're in a lot of pain down here in case you haven't noticed. Cushion is not really our friend. He really likes to cause us pain and heartache. God, would you please take notice of this and do something about it? They cry out to God. And you want to see a verse that has grace all over it? <laughs> Look at the second half of that one. And God raised up a deliverer. God raised up a rescuer, Othniel. Now, look, I don't know about you, but this cycle is going to repeat over and over and over and over again. And many of you in this room are parents. You know how this goes. After your kids kind of don't do what you say one time and two times, eventually you say, you know what? Um, Okay, you live with the consequences, natural and imposed. But here's God graciously responding Even though the people he's graciously going to deliver, they're the ones that started the process by forgetting him, moving him to the back burner, following the competitors in the land, the other gods, and God graciously comes, raises up Othniel to deliver. I mean, that is a grace story, isn't it? That's amazing. Yeah, but if you want to see greater grace, just fast forward in the story to the ultimate deliverer that God sends people like us. Who repeatedly run through that same cycle. Well, the Othniel cycle ends. I want to call your attention to a couple of things just so we kind of pick up the details. Othniel was Caleb's younger brother. You know what? Faith must have run in that family. That's what I'm thinking. Now, some of you may know who Caleb is, and some of you may not. Let me just give you a quick thumbnail sketch. And since it's only the Pro Bowl today, and what the heck is that, you can check that out on your own this afternoon. Kind of Google Caleb and Othniel, and you can find out some neat stuff. But here's the basic backstory to Caleb. When Moses leads the Israelites out of bondage, out of oppression, out of Egypt, they make it to the threshold of the promised land in pretty quick order. It was not a 40-year journey. It probably only took a month or so. So they wind up at the threshold of the promised land, And so Moses says, okay, each tribe select a representative. We're gonna send the 12 representatives into the land of spies. They'll come back and give us a report on the land and how we should go about taking the land. Othniel, or excuse me, Caleb, Othniel's brother, is one of the spies, along with Joshua, the guy whose whose book gets named for him right before Judges. They're two of the 12 spies, they go into the land. They all come back and they give, the basic, they give the same basic report, at least for the most part. Here's the basic report. It is a great land, wow! They bring back clus- clusters of grapes. It takes two people to carry the clusters. Enormous, it's a wonderful land. 10 of them say, but, but, the people that live there are really big. The people that live there have superior weapons. The people that live there have fortified cities and forts and stuff. We've got nothing. We were slaves for like 400 years. We have nothing. It's a great land, but we can't take it. Oh, yeah, remember that from last week. It's a great land, but we can't take it. Joshua and Caleb say it's a great land. They are big. They have superior weapons. They've got walls around their cities, but God can take it. They are shouted down, and the Israelites are turned away from the promised land and wander in the desert for 40 years. Caleb said, let's take it. Now, in in Joshua, the book before Judges, Joshua and Caleb are the only two from that generation that make it into the promised land. Caleb comes before Joshua, who's kind of parceling out the land, Now, Caleb's an old guy now, right? He's been through the wilderness 40 years. He was was an adult when they left Egypt. Joshua says, well, Caleb, look, you know, you've been faithful. God says pick your land. Here's what Caleb said. I want that mountain. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are, like, military guys. Um, The hardest piece of a land to take is the mountain because the forces that are occupying the mountain have gravity in their favor. See how that works? So they can throw big stuff at you, and it can kind of knock you down the mountain. Caleb says, I want the mountain. Joshua says, you've got it. And Caleb takes the mountain. Caleb's younger brother is named Othniel, our first judge. That must have been a pretty good family, don't you think? Oh, yeah, one other thing I want to remind you before we go to the next story. Look at how that story ends, the last verse, verse 11. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Deliverance and peace are tied to the judge. You're going to find that repeated over over and over and over and over again in the book. The land had peace for 40 years and then the judge died. And then the judge died. You know what we need? If you want deliverance and peace that lasts forever, you need a judge that doesn't die, right? I mean, that's the point. All these judges die, which means all of the deliverance and all the peace, it's always temporary. That's why it really is good news when the ultimate judge in the book of Revelation says, I am the God who was alive, was dead, and alive again forevermore. That's the judge we need. The deliverance and peace never ends because our judge never dies. What Othniel could not do, Jesus does. Well, now we come to the next story. And uh, I have to tell you right up front, this is probably my favorite judge story. And my favorite character is Ahud. So i got to refrain myself as we kind of go through. I could talk about this for a while, but Ahud is pretty. Some of you are going to think, after I read the story, Charles, you are disgusting. That's okay. That's okay. It's still my favorite story. Well, follow along as I read, and you're going to see again, 3.12, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the... That's not a repeat from the beginning of the Othniel story. That's the beginning of the Ehud story. They do evil in the eyes of the Lord like they never learn, right? Well, here we go. Verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did evil, um, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. Little footnote, the city of Palms is Jericho. Now think about that. The first great victory that the Israelites experience in the Promised Land is the defeat of Jericho. Well, here Eglon, king of Moab, kicked them out of Jericho. He takes Jericho back. They can't be feeling good. The Israelites, verse 14, were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave him a deliverer. There's the cycle again. But here he is, Ahud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ahud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, 18 inches, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Fat shaming was not a problem back then, right? So he was a very fat man. After Ahud had presented the tribute, he sent, off, um, he, he sent on their way those who carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left so the king could get the secret message. Ahud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ahud reached with his left hand drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. It's like a junior high story, right? (laughs) Ahud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed over it. I told you he was a big guy, right? A lot of girth. Then Ahud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fall to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Syra. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years you got to love that story, right? All right, well, let's kind of walk through and see uh, what we can learn from the story. The first thing you notice right out of the chute, it's a geographical location, different historical time, different cultural expectations and mores, but there are a lot of things that we can learn. And some of you kind of laughed when the Israelites would have heard this story read. Whether they heard it for the 50th time or the first time, they would have roared with laughter and rejoiced in the victory that God gave them. And if you're nothing but grossed out when you hear it, that's because you live in a different time and you live in a different culture with different expectations. Well, let's see if we can figure it out. Well, first of all, we have a strange rescuer. Do you notice that? Now, you may not have noticed it right up front, but Ahud is a left-handed guy, and everybody knows left-handed guys are strange and weird, all right? So let me How many of you are left-handed? Raise your hands. All right, good. Now let me tell you right up front, you all know that you live in a right-handed world, right? You do live in a right-handed world. If you want to buy something left-handed, you've got to shop and shop and shop. I have a couple of friends that are left-handed golfers. They're always complaining that they can't find golf clubs that they want. They always kind of get last year's model. things are always picked over. The only good news is, nobody ever asked the barter clubs because there aren't that many left-handers, right? If you have a watch. Watches are designed for right-handed people. Where do you turn the little thing? You turn the little thing if you're right-handed at the bottom. If you're left-handed, you gotta like turn it over this way or you take it off to turn. We live in a right-handed world because left-handed people are out of sync. They're outsiders, they're strange, they're weird. Something's wrong with left-handed people. Jay Desko's left-handed, that's a problem, right? (laughs) So I make my case, it's a strange thing to be left-handed. But back in the day, Left-handed wasn't just out of the norm, to be left-handed was to be wrong-handed. So if you read through the Bible, you read things like this. All of God's pleasures are at which of his hands? Are at his right hand. God's second in command will sit at his right hand. Your left hand you do filthy, creepy things with. Your right hand is the place of power and pleasure you're most, because most people are right handed. Your right hand is your strong hand, it's the place that you do fine things with. So most people are right handed. Ahud, the first judge, or the second judge after off the paradigm judge, he's a left handed guy. He's an outsider, he's out of the norm, he's a strange deliverer. After all, you wouldn't expect if God's power is in his right hand, his pleasures are at his right hand, those that are important to him will sit at his right hand, why in the world would you choose a left-handed guy? But Ahud is a left-handed guy. Now there are some commentators, and we're not going to solve this debate here, the the way that, and it's important to say this at least, the way the Hebrew reads is not that he was a left-handed guy. It reads that he could not use his right hand. So, does that mean that Ahud was disabled? That he couldn't use his right hand? Not exactly sure. But anyway, he's an outcast. He's not what you would expect. He's a left-handed guy. But here's the point. God not only uses an outsider, he uses his left-handedness to make the integral twist in the story. If Ehud was right-handed, he never could have stabbed fat Eglon. It's only because he was left-handed that he could carry out the secret message delivery. Now, why is that? Well, because if you're right-handed and you have an 18-inch sword that you made, okay, all of you sword wielders, if you're right-handed, where would you put your sword if you're right-handed? On which of your sides? The left side. If you're right-handed, you are right you could not get it out, right? You'd stab yourself in the thigh, right? And Remember that? Um, but if you're right-handed, you put the sword on your left side, then you draw the sword across your body. You can take the 18, 20, 36 inches and pull it out. You can't get it if it's on the same side. Okay, now, rewind the clock. Ahud is left-handed. So which thigh is he going to put his sword on? His right side. So when he comes back with this secret message for Eglon, he'd already been there. When he comes back with the secret message, what are the bouncers at the door going to do? Well, just like the TSA guys at the airport, they're kind of tired. They're waiting for their coffee break. Yeah, they're going to pat him down, but they're going to pat down his left thigh, not his right thigh, because he was already there. So they feel, those sort of, go ahead in. So he walks into Eglon's presence with his sword because it's on the right side because he's left-handed. Strange kind of rescuer, isn't it? Oh, yeah, not just that. It's a strange, strange rescue. Now, we're told that Eglon is a really, really fat man. And uh, I kept, you know, I, I sometimes get emails because of what I say. Did you notice, though, the Bible said he was a really fat man? So don't send me an Send your email somewhere else, right? The Bible said he was really fat. But here's the point, and here's the humor. Now, remember, Moab, Eglon is the king of Moab, Moab has been oppressing Israel for a long period of time. So why and how would have Eglon gotten so fat? His girth is expanding because of the oppression of God's people. They keep going in, stealing the crops, taking all their stuff, bringing it back. Eglon gets the choicest of the choice. Eglon is chowing down because the Israelites are oppressed. But notice his fatness, right? Kind of job of the hut. His fatness, can't you just say? His fatness is kind of part of the story, too. We've got a strange rescuer who's wrong handed, and we got a strange rescue because the king is enormously obese. And so he can't really fight back. He's like a giant amoeba on the bed, he can barely make it to his feet. And when Ahud, Takes out the sword from his side, right? Plunges it into his belly. <laughs> the guy's so fat, his fat covers the handle. His hand is gross, right? He pulls his hand out of that mess and leaves the sword in there and escapes. Now, some people say, oh, but it's a very deceptive story. It is. I mean, deceit is part of the story, right? Tell God. He used, he used Ahud to do it. But it wasn't that deceitful. Let me ask you a question. Did Ahud have a message from God for Aegon? Sure he did. You're no longer going to do this. Your day's up. It's done. Kind of a gross story. So Ehud locks, locks the door. He came in, jumps out over the balcony, makes his getaway. They uh, go in, and since his bowels were discharged, the attendants at the door, right? If you were an Israelite, you'd be laughing at the story, right? If you, the attendants are at the door. We better not go in because, you know, you don't go in and interrupt the king, you know, when he's uh, having his private time. They wait and wait and wait, and all the while they're waiting, Ahud is making his getaway, rounding up the troops to come and win the victory. Now, that, that's a great story, right? I mean, you have to like the Ehud-Eglon story. You know, but there are uh, some pretty important points in that story. I would say it this way. we can learn more about our rescue by Jesus from the outcast Ahud than we can from the righteous, faithful Othniel. Now, there are some things we can learn from Othniel about our deliverer, Uh, but we'll learn some things about our ultimate judge from Ahud that you can't learn from Othniel. You see, Jesus is the point and the purpose of the Bible, right? You're tired of me saying that yet? The Bible's a point and a purpose. The point's Jesus. The purpose is to lead us to Him. Well, let me ask you to you like this. If you lived in the first century and you really believed that the time had come for God to send his rescuer. You believed that the time had come for the Messiah, right, Messiah King, for the king to arrive. What would you expect? Well, you would expect lots of fanfare, right? You would expect pomp. You would expect, you know, thousands and thousands of soldiers marching in a parade. You would, have, you would have expected throngs of angels Worshipping and proclaiming as he comes, you would have expected a military parade and you would have expected the defeat of Rome, Rome that is oppressing Israel because you knew Judge. You would have expected all that, right? What did we get? Well, we got a baby born into object poverty in a backwoods little town outside the capital of Jerusalem. He wasn't wearing glamorous robes and expensive armor. His parents didn't even have enough money to buy him his first outfit. They wrapped him in rags and didn't put him in a bassinet or a crib. They put him in a feeding trough. And he didn't grow up in a palace. He grew up in a carpenter shop where the family was trying to eke out a living. And probably before he was a teenager, his dad died. And as the firstborn son, he now has to take care of the family. No one in their right mind would have expected that, would they? If you knew the king was coming, you knew the Messiah was coming, you knew the rescuer, the deliverer is coming, you would never have expected Jesus. Oh, yes, strange uh, rescue? You would have expected the king riding a white stallion with his 40-inch sword drawn, leading the armies of God against the Romans. But how did the rescue come? By having that rescuer condemned, nailed to a cross, and executed. And we still look there to find our rescue, don't we? You see, you would never expect that. So, just like you would never expect the deliverance from Moab To come from a left-handed guy, even more, you would never expect the ultimate deliverer to be one like Jesus. In fact, Isaiah knew how strange it was when he wrote these words. Speaking of Jesus, think about this. The king of the universe. He had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Don't you think in Ahud's life he was despised a little bit? He was wrong-handed? Whether it's deformity or whether it's just these, he would have been despised. Probably rejected. You know, he couldn't throw the spear right, couldn't shoot the arrow right, probably couldn't do anything right. Despised. Re- yeah, but that's JV compared to the despise and rejection of Jesus, right? See, we learn something about Jesus from this really weird rescuer in Judges. But there's another strange part to this, and it's not just our strange rescuer or strange uh, unexpected rescue. We, friends, are the unexpected rescued. You know, when you read the book of Judges, if you're like me, you read around that cycle a couple times, you say, I'll tell you what, why does God keep doing this? They're just going to do it again. God moves it back, or something goes in front. God, why, why do you keep doing it? Yeah, but before you look down your snooty, self-righteous nose at those folks, you better take a look in the mirror because that's our story. And you want to see a group of people that are unexpected and would never have made the cut in the eyes of other human beings. That's us. Here's our pedigree. Paul wrote it. Brothers and sisters, think what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Just look around the room. Not many wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But who are we? God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And here's the punchline. If you can't admit that that's your pedigree, you can't join the ranks of the rescued. If you're going to count on your noble birth, count on your influence, count on your strength, count on your wisdom, you go count on those things. But if you admit you're weak and you're foolish and you can't help yourself, Jesus, the unexpected rescuer, is waiting to rescue you. Some strange things happening at Judges already, right? We made a crazy left-handed guy and a really fat king. Who, who gets the point? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I just hope that we uh, get the bigger point because Ahud is pointing to an unexpected rescuer, an unexpected rescue, and a group of people that are now the unexpected rescued. Let's stand and pray. Father, thanks for these uh, strange stories, these strange things in this really weird book. Lord, I pray that as we meet some of these judges, some of these rescuers, and we hear a little bit about the group of people they're rescuing and what they're rescuing people from, help us to extrapolate from that to the ultimate rescuer. Help us to put ourselves into the right set of shoes and help us to realize that if the human perspective was the only one, not a single one in this room would have made the cut. But a rescuer like Jesus gives grace to weak, foolish, flawed people. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.